Today's episode is all about leadership. Jen and I opened this episode with her thoughts about leading her brewery. We also discuss what happens when lines are crossed. For example, one shift beer turns into a party. Oofed. I think we've all been there. Then we bring in our guest for this episode, Carlos Knott of Biotish Brewing out of Arneville, Louisiana. We talk about the unavoidable fear that comes with running a passion project. Carlos also shares his insights about leading other leaders with his position as president of the Louisiana Craft Brewers Guild. All right, let's do it. Every little thing that we can be at, whatever it is, you know, we'll be there. Beers for everyone in society. In my opinion, the world's greatest social uniter. I mean, we had people in tears when they would take their first sip. They hadn't had a proper pint for 20 years, you know. Hey, Jen. Chris Farmond, how are you? What's up? Oh, it's a great, sunny, breezy day here in California. Awesome weather. It always is. Sli- slightly cool. It's, it's good. It's a good day. It always is. Totally. What's going on with your numbers? Oh, man. Um, they're, they're fantastic. They're the best ever. You know, it's just uh, when we were closed for COVID, we thought people forgot about us, but they didn't. As soon as we opened our doors... Bam. It was just like they, a light switch was flipped back on. So we I are, was, as Alistair likes to say, we are full on boogie. <laughs> I was referring to the COVID numbers, but we can talk about your number numbers if you want. Oh, COVID numbers. Oh, the COVID numbers are awesome too. Like they're, they're plummeting here in LA. Absolutely plummeting. Um, <clears throat> we only had nine deaths yesterday. I know it sounds, you know, like not something you want to celebrate, but, uh, and this is going to sound so weird out of context in the future when people listen to these episodes, but we've, you know, LA was having hundreds of deaths every day, um, through a winter spike that we just are coming out of. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, now our cases, instead of being in the 10, uh, you know, like 15,000 cases, we're down to like 500 cases, 400 cases, So we're really seeing the end of this. And I think it's because so many of us got sick, to be honest. Um, But also we're getting the vaccines rolled out. My son just sent me a picture of his his card. He got his second shot today. My second shot's Friday. Uh, So we're we're making progress and the vaccines are kicking ass and and, uh, really having a huge impact. I've been following data from the UK, for example, and they use this strategy of one shot per person instead of two. Mm-hmm. And it really is paying off over there big time. It turns out to be a brilliant strategy. So I was talking to someone the other day and, and I'm my second shot's coming up in a, f- a few weeks. And I was talking to someone and they said, I, w- I was asking how, how it went. And I have this like underlying fear tone in my voice and they're like, it's just a mental thing. I mean, if you go in thinking you're going to be all wiped out and sick, then you probably will end up being wiped out and sick. But if you, me, it was, it was no, no, no sweat. I just, I was sore the next day, arm a little sore, but I was great. I was good to go. It's a price well worth paying. Um, you know, everyone reacts differently, but Hey, it's just, it's like, we've never been sick before. You know, we've just been so unbelievably afraid of catching this one disease. So there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of fear around it, but 
yeah, it's worth it being out of out of whack for a day or two. It's worth it. Yeah, so. totally. Well, I'm so pumped that LA is back open. I'm still under restrictions, but you're allowed to serve your delicious pizza and delicious beer. It's great for morale. It's great for customers. It's great for business. It's great for everyone. So I'm glad you're uh, back in in the bit. Yeah. In the, in the game. Yeah. And throughout this process, like we encouraged other breweries to open kitchens as sort of a safety net and several of them are doing it. And those kitchens are just about, they're either opening in the next week or four weeks or so. So we kind of have this crazy situation in LA right now with a bunch of breweries with pizza kitchens specifically. And so (laughs) we're making jokes on, on, uh, on Instagram about like, uh, you know, doing pizza collaborations and, you know, pizza bake-offs and things like that. So all of a sudden the LA beer scene is um, overflowing with pizza kitchens. So I was like, how, how come nobody's opening a burger restaurant or hot dogs or something? It's all pizza, but Hey, I love pizza. So uh, I can't wait to see how that pans out for everyone. And I'm very excited for everyone because, um, you know, I, I always set out to just open up a, uh, a tap room. I never really wanted to have like a brew pub, but I do enjoy, um, all the benefits we get from having food on site. It does allow us to open up other products like wine and cider, and that makes our guests happier. And so I've definitely come around more to be thinking about what do the guests want rather than like, what do I want to serve guests? I mean, there has to be a balance between those two, but um, uh, we're definitely more customer friendly than we were in the beginning for sure. And I know you also dibble in desserts as well. Tell us about that. Oh um, yeah. Well, we, we actually, uh, this often happens where we have, um, you know, LA is a big place, lots of people, lots of talent. And people will come up to us and say, hey, I'm just getting a, a business going and I'd love to work with you. So we lucked out. We have this patron who is a cheesecake goddess. Um, and she is just making the most incredible little mini cheesecakes that are so elaborately decorated. And also since she's local and small, she customizes things for us. She uses our beer in some of the... Um, cheesecake she did this awesome cheesecake with our dry irish stout called cut and dry and um so she did this stout based cheesecake and um i guess inspired by british cuisine she put a potato chip on the top that was dipped half dipped in chocolate Mm. it was so amazing and um she does oh she does like a crazy breakfast cheesecake that has like little mini pancakes and bacon on top. <laughs> she's, she's incredible. It's incredible. Wow. So uh, we're very happy to offer those at the, at the brewery. It sounds delicious. Yeah. We also have a soft serve ice cream machine, uh, which is our East coast style. A guy from New Jersey came out to California, didn't like any of the soft serve. So he opened up like this very retro truck Mm-hmm. Um, and we have like a mini, a mini version of that where we license, um, he came and, um, wrapped it to look like his truck, even though it's just like a little standalone machine. And, um, we serve soft served, soft serve ice cream. And because we have a British connection with our brewery, we, um, 
we purchased Cadbury Flakes. I don't know if you know what those are, but in England, they have a ice cream thing called a 99. And it's basically soft serve ice cream on a cone with this Cadbury Flake stuck in the side, which basically looks like a little chocolate log. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so we have those and people get very excited about that. So that, and then you can make beer floats with those or, you know, it's great for the kids, etc. So we got a little bit, a little bit of dessert going on. That's great. Well, I think as a brew pub, you really need to think about the whole experience and you've done that. It's not yeah. just pizzas, it's pizzas and salads and starters and, and dessert along with the beverages. So. Well, you inspired uh, me about that, Chris, cause you were, you know, we had a, a, a menu that wasn't as diverse, but you mentioned that you had another brewery that was kicking our butt in the food department and they had a lot more small bites. So I was like, I'm not going to let that other brewery kick us in the butt. So I added small bites and appetizers and, and uh, made a huge difference. So anyone else who's adding food, uh, like definitely, definitely follow that. You want to add, you want to have a lot of little appetizers and stuff, but really people really go for that. Yeah. And you're not just talking about like chips, right? You're talking about hot, like prepared stuff. Yeah. We started with, uh, you could get like two spicy meatballs. Um, we, we did some beer cheese with a pretzel. We did, um, we're doing olives. We're doing, uh, we are even doing pickled eggs, but just little things that people can get. And I was afraid that they were going to get them instead of the pizza, but they don't, they, they get the pizza too. So it's just more things that you can add on to the ticket. Our tickets have gone from like 24 bucks when we first opened the pizza kitchen to uh, anywhere between 32 and 38 bucks now. So that's a huge difference. Yeah. And I think that's two reasons for that. One is the appetizers and the desserts. And the other is um, we've got so much more canned product now because of COVID. And um, it's a nice variety of cans you came in and saw our little fridge and you were like, that's nice, but add several more. And we did. So Chris, it's you, man. You're, oh my gosh. <laughs> you're, it's all you. This is not called the praise Chris <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know. I just share, I just share the collective knowledge that I gather from all the wonderful people I work with. So yeah, it is, it is not, um, I, I'm happy to help any way I can because I know that, it, it's all good stuff. Yeah. Well, that's why I love working with you because you do t- talk to other brewery owners all day long. And I love that, you know, we all benefit from you being like a conduit of, um, all of our info. So, yeah. Well, I can tell you that I've preached your name and in, in your food success to many, many customers and awesome. it is, um, you, so you are, uh, a, a, a shining star on, in my, in my eyes as well, because of your execution is just flawless. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's fun. I do love food. <laughs> I love pizza. So it's fun. It's cool. All right. So today's episode is about leadership and I know that, um, leadership is a touchy topic for some breweries, other breweries, it's all buttoned up, but let me open up with asking, what does leadership mean to you? 
Okay. Can I just preface this by saying in no way do I think I'm a good leader (laughs) or, um, you know, like it's uncomfortable to maybe talk about leadership as though like I somehow have it figured out because I probably don't, but I certainly can talk about like my perspective about it. Um, I think leadership, first of all, you got to be a good role model. Um, You really have to walk the walk. Everybody hates uh, a hypocrite. So Mm -hmm. I think that's just number one. You got to, you got to live the way you want your employees to live and you got to be willing to be shoulder to shoulder with them. And, you know, we're in this together kind of thing. Another thing is that I've talked to you at length about how I really, um, for me, the brewery priority is employee experience. And I put that above even beer quality and food quality and customer experience. Like to me, the employee experience is the absolutely most important thing. Um, I have no interest in running a company with a bunch of miserable employees. So Mm -hmm. it's for my own benefit too. Like when I walk in, I want to be happy and I want to be greeted cheerfully. And um, we all want that. So I think that's really important. If you don't have that, you know, the rest doesn't matter. So um, I think leadership also means that I'm responsible for kind of always having an eye towards how are we moving this company forward? Um, No one else is going to think about that except for me. So that's my job as a leader. Like where are we going next and how do we get there? Um, Also delegating so that, um, you know, the place functions when I'm not around Mm -hmm. and um, that's a hard one for a lot of people. Um, Yes. I treasure my weekends. Like Alistair and I, my husband and I have this kind of not really battle, but he doesn't like to delegate. And so he ends up going in every day and I think he enjoys it. And he says he enjoys it, but like he's kind of responsible for making sure all of the patio furniture is arranged properly. And you know, the umbrellas are up and whatnot. And I kind of feel like those are jobs that he should definitely be delegating to a lower, um, echelon employee and the problem is when you go on vacation you're just worried about like oh i bet they're not setting up the dart hall properly or whatever (laughs) so Mm -hmm. it's like you have to delegate so that you can not be there and have confidence that everything is going according to plan um and then um I'm reading off my cheat sheet because you sent, you sent these topics to me for a while ago. So like the last thing I have on this is um, making hard, but just decisions. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've had quite a few of those recently. Um, And yeah, it's not fun. Um, There's some things that have come up, for example, with like deciding to 86 customers, for example, that's a tough one for us. Um, but you know, that takes leadership and steadfastness. Someone, someone's got to be willing to stand up and do that, that dirty well, work and be firm about it. So what would be a situation on 86 and a customer? Um, well, um, you know, like a lot of times it's your regulars who get 86 because, 
Um, they get really familiar. So you're talking about people who come all the time mm-hmm. and they spend a lot of money and we're very appreciative that come people come and spend money. But every once in a while, one of them will cross the line and get overly familiar or like, you know, pinch somebody or actually we had an uh, an employee got bitten on the neck by somebody who like reached against across the bar and gave them a little nibble as though they were at some party with friends, you know, and it's like, we love you, but we're not really your friends. And like, um, so if you come in and cross that line or if you're, um, you know, maybe starting to say things. We had a customer who was always commenting on our Irish bartender's accent and how cute it was and how cute he was and, you know, just stuff like that. And at some point you have to say like, this has crossed the line and it's not appropriate. This person's coming in four days a week. So it's very difficult to stand up to that person and say, you know, unfortunately we have to ask you not to come anymore, (laughs) but somebody's got to do it. So that's the leadership person. (laughs) So I was going to go back and explain 86's restaurant lingo for whenever the restaurant oh. runs out of something. I think most people that have anybody that's worked in a restaurant knows that that term. It's it it just flies around. Yeah. Uh, and in the, and then so my second question to you was is it you know is it around asking someone to leave for the night because they have too much to drink? But I think you even answered that in saying no, we're permanently 86ing people due to various reasons. Yeah, it's not a huge list and we hate doing it. But again, it's just one of those things where we're the only ones that can do that job and it's a sucky job. And, um, but you have to do it because back to my first point, employee happiness is our number one thing. So we always have to put their comfort and protection above money or patrons. Sure. So you started your answer by saying, I do not claim to do it well, or I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing, but <laughs> I wrote down a few notes. You lead by example, you live and die by your culture, you eat last with the responsibility piece, you hold yeah. people accountable, yeah. and you make hard decisions. Yeah. Hey, Jen, guess what, Jen? That's, that's a leader. That's the definition of a leader. Yes. I did it. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah, I mean awesome. that is it. That that's that's the the guidepost right there for an effective leader. So your patrons come back, your team comes back, you have a quality product, you have a consistent product. I mean th- you just nailed it. So I guess yeah, I guess where I would kind of get uh get confused or when whatever a person could get confused is the difference between being a good leader and air quotes, best boss ever, you know? So am I the most likable boss ever? I mean, I try, but I probably am not. So that's different though than leadership. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a quote I was throwing around probably five or six years ago, and and it was humans hate, but thrive with accountability. And the whole point is that for a business to scale and a business to run and processes to happen, you have to have accountability. Some of those tasks or processes are so mundane, right? In the accounting office, it's mundane. In a brewery, it could be mundane. But hey, guess what? 
number one, we're dealing with people's money. Number two, you're dealing with people's like health and people's uh, not health, but people like enjoying your product. So mm-hmm. these, these pros, this, this accountability has to happen. And I think there's a line between what you described as being a, an effective leader and being a best boss. And it's a matter of walking that line and not, not going. Cause I think uh, the best boss in the world can get railroaded by uh, a team, uh, mm-hmm. certainly a team that knows what they're doing and an effective leader can alienate themselves or, or over effective leader can alienate themselves as, Oh shit, here comes the boss. By the way, I hate the term boss. Yeah. I despise it. And, and I had a young guy that I worked with me for a little while and he'd come in and be like, Hey boss, what up? And I don't know what irks me about the word. I can't even tell you, but I just, um, I hate it. But to your point, you know, that, that super effective leader that, that just like lives and dies by the textbook. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to work for that guy. So it sounds to me like everything you're doing is a really good balance because that effective leader has to make hard decisions, whether it's with patrons, whether it's with menu items, whether it's with packaging sizes, whether it's with staff, it just, you got to do it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So well, it's e- I guess it's easy to make a lot of decisions that are bad and unpopular. So I think the decisions there the hard ones, I mean you have to let justice they have to be just and good. Like they might be hard, but I think you need to make decisions where people are like that sucked, but I could see why they made that decision rather right. than just you know, a boss who's just like tyrannical and just making decisions that are just make piss everybody off. Like, you know, those are hard decisions too, but (laughs) bad. So it's not just because it's a hard decision doesn't mean you made the right decision. (laughs) Right. So why do you think this is such a challenge for most breweries out there to, for the founders to remove themselves from the day to day and step back and say, okay, I'm going to be in a more leadership role. I'm going to lead by example, which I probably have been doing for the past three to four years. I want to work on the culture. I really want to focus on being responsible and letting everyone know that I do eat last and then accountability and and making hard decisions. Why, why do you think that shift is so hard for, for brewery owners? Um, I would imagine, and this, this might not be true and I don't want to offend any breweries owners out there, but I, from my perspective, I would imagine that a lot of brewery owners get into brewery opening breweries because they're home brewers and they love making beer and drinking beer. And when you become a brewery owner, that's really not the job anymore. Um, I mean, I didn't come from a homebrew background, so I never had an expectation that I was going to be doing all the brewing. Um, but I think at some point, if you do start a brewery at one day, you have to wake up and realize like, damn it, I don't get to do the fun job (laughs) of brewing. I have to be more administrative. I have to look at more spreadsheets. I have to do, you know, um, HR responsibilities. So it's kind of like probably a lot, a lot of brewers went into it with an expectation that they were just going to get to have fun and brew beer. And that's not what owning a brewery 
is about. Right. Although some people manage to turn, you know, some people, I do know some brewery owners who still, you know, get involved in the brewing, but I think that's rare. So the reality doesn't match what the fantasy is, if I hear you correct. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I, I think it, 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 I think brewing is very romantic. I think it's a a process where you're turning all these ingredients into a delicious liquid, and but the reality of it is, there's so much more that goes into it, right? Yeah, I mean, even my head brewers haven't done the brewing. You know, it's like they're not brewing; they're they're um, supervising the people who are doing the brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, if you get into brewing or even, or, or cooking, you know, with thinking that you're going to be this chef turning out, you know, you're going to be the actual one doing the work. I mean, you can, in the beginning, yes, you do have to do it, but it doesn't take long until you have to turn that, those reins over to someone else. Right. And I never was the brewer, but that's sort of like my one big regret about McLeod is like, I love doing things with my hands and presenting, you know, my handiwork to people and having them go, Oh my God, this is so wonderful. You know? So I don't get to do that really like directly. Like I can't hand someone a beer and say, I made this beer for you and have them drink it and go, Oh my God, it's the best beer ever. You know, I just have to take pride in the team that I put together to create that beer rather than sure. actually the beer itself. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk for a minute about hiring and the difficulties uh, around hiring, especially when you get started and you're doing pretty much everything or a majority of everything. And then when you transition out of that, right? So hiring in general is one of the hardest things that any business goes through. You Yeah. Yeah. So you need to figure out when you need to hire what for what position and then the the whole human aspect of it. Right. The whole human aspect of is this person a good fit? Is it not a good fit? Like talk talk to me about your experience there, because you and I have had many conversations about this and you Mm -hmm. amaze me uh, with with your (laughs) calm approach to building your team. Um. Yeah. Well, at first you just try to find the best people you can, but over time, if you are lucky enough to get a good team going, I feel like our best employees have come from friends of current employees or actually patrons become great employees. Like, um, you know, we have a great culture at McLeod that I'm really proud of and And um, sometimes patrons who've been coming for a long time start to think like, hey, I'd really love to work behind the bar here or I'd really like to get a job here. Well, that's a great start because they already know they love the place. They love what we're doing. They know they would fit in because they've been, you know, observing us and we've been observing them. And, um, and we're kind of uh, ahead of the game when they start because we don't really have to explain to them what we're about, what our standards are. Like, uh, assume, I assume they fell in love with McLeod because they got great customer service and they loved their beer. So 
they're going to be on day one wanting to give that same experience or an even better experience to mm-hmm. the people they're serving. So we're kind of ahead of the game there. Um, so oftentimes, I mean, I rarely even put out ads, help wanted ads. We usually fi- fill positions because uh, it becomes known internally that we're looking for this, that, or the other type person. And somebody internally will say, oh, God, I have a, a buddy over, you know, who's looking for a job. They'd be perfect here or something. So, you know, nine times out of 10, that's how we get our employees um, from either referrals or patrons. <laughs> so to sum it up, you're saying that your culture is so outstanding that it's an organic feeder for recruitment. As well. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's a great, a great, great thing. And, and what's the typical process when someone, when someone gets started, are they, uh, is there a probationary period or are they just right out of the gates an employee? And, and like, do you have any processes around that or, or how, how do you, how do you handle that? Yeah, I, uh, one day we'll become much more corporate with this kind of stuff. I have to confess, um, like we're a little bit more lax with that. Um, but we have an employee manual. It starts off with, they get an employee manual that has basically everything they could ever want to know about McLeod and vacation and beer, you know, how much beer they get to take home and policies like that. And, um, and now we've added a link to, they have to do some sexual harassment training and stuff like that. So they get all of that. So I think that gives them a good feel for the technicalities of our benefits. And then, um, and then the tap room manager will take in all the new tap room people and the, or the kitchen manager will take the new kitchen person in. And they generally start on a, a not busy day, like uh, Monday through Wednesday. And they just start shadowing people. And, um, you know, we don't have like a formal, this is what I would like to have is like a formal checklist. I think actually Adrian did set up something like this and I don't know if that's been implemented, but ideally you would have like a checklist so you can check off things as you're showing someone. Um, but basically they just get, um, we, we schedule in training days. So it's like, it's a little extra money for us uh, because they're shadowing and they're, you know, we might have be totally overstaffed for a Monday or whatever, but you know, it's an investment that we make to um, bring someone on and just have them uh, another staff member, like take them through everything and the managers. Yeah. Tell me some of the joys of being a leader that you experience. Um, well, back again to my favorite topic, which was, which is employee happiness. I mean, I, I'm really, I really puff out my chest sometimes when I, when I look around at the staff and I know that they're happy or proud to work there and happy with what they're doing. And, um, that's a great feeling. And every, when everyone, everything is copacetic and everybody's working really well together and you know you've just created a really high functioning team of really quality people. It's it's a great feeling. It's really great feeling. Um, 
And that's, that's what we have right now. I, I, I also know every time that I'm feeling like, oh my God, everything is perfect right now. I know that just around the corner, something's going to happen. But we always, you know, this happened enough times now where, you know, we're like a cat. We always land on our feet. And um, I've just learned to take those things in stride because we do hit little bumps in the road, but then we always straighten it out. So. Yeah. I think that's part of the game though, because I also go through those waves of things are going really, really well right now. Like what could happen to the team? What could happen to the business? What could happen to me that would just throw the train off, off the bus. And that has gotten, those thoughts have gotten a a lot less as our team has grown. And a lot of my responsibilities have been offloaded off my plate, Mm -hmm. but Dude, there was a time where I mean, it was this place was live or die by Chris Farman, and, and yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at my notes. I see two other things under this question. So um, satisfaction of putting together a great team. Um, I have on here that uh, you get to see your own vision fulfilled, and I think that's something where, um, like, if you imagine a lot of people in corp- the corporate world or whatever. I know I spent a lot of time in the corporate world daydreaming about starting my own thing. So yeah, it is fun. It's super fun to get to do things your way, the color you want, (laughs) everything the way you want it. Um, You know, it's fun. I mean, everything's a compromise, but um, for the most part, I'm getting to do things the way I want them. And that's fun. Um, And the best employees will understand that, by the way. Um, I think you and I have talked about this a great deal, but sometimes you get employees that get over-invested in what you're doing and they start to feel like they want their vision fulfilled at your place. But the best employee knows that they're there to help you fulfill your vision, not their vision. Mm -hmm. And I do have employees like that and um, it makes everyone happy, so... And then the other thing I have on here is that you get to make decisions without bureaucracy. Oh my gosh. I love that. Every once in a while, you know, like, like we'll brew a beer and it'll have a name. And then the last minute we'll decide, Hey, maybe we should name it this other name. And we could just do that. It takes us five minutes and we can name it anything we want. We don't have to fill out a form. We don't have to have a meeting about it or ask the boss. We could just name it whatever we want. So just things like that are really fun. <laughs> what about some challenges of leadership? Um, yeah, we already talked about firing employees or 86 in customers. That, of course, is like the hardest thing. Right. Um but the second, I guess the biggest downside for me about my business is ha- having the weight of the financial success of the company on my shoulders. Like in my case, I have a great partner with my husband, Alistair, but he doesn't even look at the bank account ever, ever, ever. It's just not a concern of his. He doesn't know where the money comes from, how much we have, how much we spend. He just gets up every day, goes to the brewery, does his stuff. And just trust me to, you know, make sure that it's all running properly. So um, that's why I have you, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't have that all by myself. You know, I obviously need, I need, I need help. I need propping up with that because I'm not the greatest money person in the world. But yeah, I do feel, um, 
I do feel that. And especially this past year, I think I've used this analogy a couple of times, but I have felt like I was flying a 747 through a very small obstacle course with no pilot's license this whole year with COVID. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh crap. Like I'm, it's my job to make sure that this company is still standing at the end of this. And we're talking about a worldwide pandemic um, and not everybody made it through. So um, that was, um, that was pretty much as challenging as it's ever going to get. Right. <laughs> right. I think. And I mean, I can, we made it. Totally. I can, I can definitely relate to the challenge of, feeling the pressure of the entire company on your, on your shoulders. That also begins for me that the pressure valve has started to release over time as we've built a more confident team and competent team. But yeah, I'll repeat for a while there. It was, it was a lot of, a lot of pressure, a lot of challenge. Every decision was on, on my, my desk and that's just not sustainable. It's not comfortable. It's not sustainable. So yeah. Are, yeah. Um, I think the thing that helped me the most with that is I, this is going to be so old school kind of, but I'm going to, I'm going to pre uh, preempt your shout out question and give my shout out to Dale Carnegie um, who wrote how to win friends and influence people. And he also wrote this awesome book called how to stop worrying and live your life. And yes, these are corny, cheesy books from the forties. And yes, we already, already know everything that's written inside them. We know it. But um, he, in his How to Stop Worrying book, he has these tools that you can use. Each chapter, he explains a different tool. And my favorite tool, the one that helps me the absolute most, is just to simply ask myself, what's the worst that could happen? Right? So yeah. um, the story that he tells is of like this soldier in a trench in World War II and the Nazis are shooting at him. And he's like, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> we all know the answer to that. Right. Um, but, but there's something about coming to terms with it. Like, okay, I could get shot by a Nazi. And then what would happen? Okay, my family would be sad and this is what would happen. But there's something about running through that scenario in advance that's very soothing because it's like you face your worst fears mentally. So like the, what's the worst that could happen? Okay. McLeod could close. Okay. And then what would happen to all the employees? Okay. They probably get other jobs. And then what would happen to me? Well, I'd figure out something to do. Maybe I'd go into real estate or something. You know, it's just like, if you can think through that scenario, it's, you can be a little more fearless. You don't, you're not making decisions based on panic. You've already like come to terms with the worst case scenario. And it's just, I find it very soothing and comforting to think nice. about that. Yeah. I ask myself that question a lot when I'm in a, in a pickle and it's, it's, a it, you, you explain it the best, right? It's, it's what's the worst that could happen. And mm -hmm. so I think that's a, a great action item for everyone here who you know, has these experiences as a leader running their business. Yeah. Totally. Hey, we got to get to a killer interview with Carlos Knott from Bayutesh Brewing. Oh, I can't wait. All right. I'll talk to you on the other side. Okay. See ya.
sound great. Awesome. Well, that's the first. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos, Jen, Jen, Carlos. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jen. Yeah, I was very excited to see uh, some potato pizza on your menu because we just added potato to our pizza and it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Catholics here and during Lent they can't eat meat on Fridays. Uh, myself included and so uh it was just a natural to put a, a potato pizza i'm selling quite a few of them well here in california we have a lot of vegans not necessarily catholic so <laughs> well, we, we, we don't have result. vegans in louisiana that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> well it looked it looked delicious that's but awesome i have to check you guys out we're in california we're in LA. Uh, we're in the we're in a, a kind of an area of LA called the San Fernando Valley. Yeah, I lived and, in uh, in um, Ventura County for a while. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. We're down uh, the road from there. Yeah, nice. I'm sure it's changed. I was there in the '80s. I'm sure it's changed quite a bit. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Probably um, just more development on the road yeah. from Ventura to LA. There's probably quite a few more developments, but weather's still the same pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, it's great meeting you. Same here. Look forward to checking you guys out. Thanks. Meet someone likewise. So let's get started here. Um, I want to welcome Carlos Knott from Bayou Tesh Brewing in Louisiana. Carlos, give us an idea exactly where in Louisiana you're located. So we're in a part of Louisiana called Acadiana. It's the traditional home of the Cajuns. Uh, it's about 22 parishes or counties in the rest of the country. And uh, we're in the middle of it, right in the middle of, uh, we're right on the edge of a swamp. So a pretty stereotypical Cajun. Nice. Very good. Um, for all the listeners, give us a background of, of Bayou Tesh. Give us an age, brew house size, barrels, and what you guys have done over the last, uh, I don't know, four or five years. Yeah, we've been around about 12 years. Oh, 12. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I, 12. I missed that, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we started kind of the beginning of, of the craft industry in Louisiana. Um, there was a beta, then NOLA, then us. Uh, uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're about, uh, depends on the year. Cause this year, last year has been kind of crazy, but we probably average about 6,000 barrels a year. Uh, we started off doing pretty much like, uh, German, Belgian and French style ales. Uh, cause it kind of complemented, you know, the, the whole heritage of the area. Um, but, uh, the last few years, that's been a tough sell in Louisiana. Most people want IPAs and we didn't offer an IPA for the first probably eight nine years so so we've added ipas and american pails and stuff to the mix mm-hmm. got a 20 barrel 20 barrel automated brew house from italy um it really acts more like a 40 barrel it's kind of hard to describe but it's uh, two separate systems built into one and um so we uh we crank that out pretty much every day we're brewing something awesome when you first opened with the, were those styles well received they uh, were uh our our first beer was a Belgian pale, and the second beer was a smoked, like a Roush beer. And uh, we sold quite a few of them. Um, but in the industry, just in general now, if you put Belgian on something, it's pretty much a tough sale. sell. Uh, our first IPA was a Belgian IPA, and we sold a lot of it. It's called Cocodry. 
but even that, you know, if you write Belgian on the label, it kind of kind of hurts the sale. So we switched that to a straight double dry hopped IPA. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that. I've noticed that the Belgian style has gone by the wayside. I wonder if it'll right. ever make a comeback. I sure hope so. Uh, I've got a, a nice little group of guys we work with, and uh, we'll go, you know, hit retailers and 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 look for those Belgian beers that I fell in love with when I started drinking, you know, serious beer. And uh, and they're hard getting hard to find. Some of these these uh, Trappist beers or or Belgian and French beers are are, are tough, you know, tough placements. Mm-hmm. Do you guys do any barrel aging? We do a lot. We do both uh, sours uh, in barrels and the traditional, more like bourbon barrel. Uh, we're kind of known, the beer we're kind of known for is called Miel Sauvage, which means wild honey. And it's a braggot aged in bourbon barrels from anywhere from eight to 18 months, depending on the, the, the vintage. And um, I love that beer. It's kind of boozy and it's all the stuff that's good for you. Whiskey, honey, beer, all in one bottle. Nice. Nice. Well, today's episode, we want to focus on leadership and why leadership in breweries is, is, is hard to accomplish or easy to accomplish. It really depends on the history of the, the particular brewery, but I think it's, import, it's a very important topic to bring up every season because I've mentioned this before. I, I I do believe that the brewing industry has evolved from the bros network or the gals network to more well-defined run businesses, but it's got to start with leadership. So to kick us off, describe to me what your role, I know you're the founder of the brewery. Describe, describe to me what your role has looked like in that leadership function over the past 12 years. So we're a family business. It's uh, my brother and our wives and uh and kids and my parents all kind of started it and uh you know at first the first probably five six years it was kind of rule by committee you know everything was agonizing (laughs) it would take months of Mm -hmm. arguing over like what color to put in one spot on the label and uh and and the end of the day you you got something that was like the amc pacer you remember (laughs) you know it wasn't it was technically everybody agreed it was a good car but it really wasn't so uh we uh you know, had to kind of evolve and it's become more of, uh, you know, a traditional pyramid shape where everybody has their role, but someone at the end of the day has to make a call. Um, so that's pretty much how we've evolved uh, that. There was a lot of education, you know, I signed up for a lot of classes, read a lot of books and, and um, you know, and had a lot of meetings with the family and, and the employees about how things are going to change. And I think that's true. Like you're right. That that's kind of industry wide. You know, I talk to people who've been in it, you know, five, 10 years, you start off thinking you created a little utopia and, you know, you don't have to, to lead. <laughs> Everybody's just going to be fat and happy. But uh, at the end of the day, someone's got to point you in the right direction. Yeah. The leadership by committee works for a while, but at some point when the switch happens that this passion project really is turning into a business then there has to be a shot caller, uh, no matter what that org chart looks like or how many founders there are. And, and we've especially seen this over the past 18 months with COVID. Right. That decisions have got to be made in a more timely fashion to pivot the business, 
to bring on new lines, to delete lines, styles, to continue the the health and and the growth of 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 the operation. So, I would say kudos to you guys for for making that transition. And I know it's hard because I also came from a family run business, and it it can get it can get muddy with 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 that wow. with that situation. Yeah, the Louisiana does not very much well, but one thing it does well is uh, through our small business uh, uh, group with the state, they have uh, CEO roundtables where they put together 18 CEOs for eight, nine months. Uh, they meet, I think, weekly. And uh, I was in one and it had probably 20 CEOs, anything from a $500 million, you know, uh, manufacturing plant for oil field all the way down to, you know, a couple of restaurants or whatever. And it's all the same problems, right? <laughs> Everybody from a very successful oil field business to, you know, a guy doing some printing of a package or whatever and uh, same family problems or business problems. So it's something you, you probably best, you know, getting under control early as opposed to waiting till you're a bit bigger and it's harder to change the course of that ship. Right. I think humans naturally gravitate toward what is comfortable for them. Right. So founders will do what is is comfortable and they know very well, along with everything else, because the doors have got to stay open, right? So founders right. will will clean, they will do the accounting, they'll do the legal to a certain extent, and then but the, when they really get when they really love what their their passion is, then they'll do do that part. But at some point, you really do have to transition out and delegate and and hold those people accountable into. Uh, getting getting the task done at the quality and the brand level, right? right. At the brand yeah. level of the of the brewery. Um, wh- why do you think it's so hard in the brewing industry to, to tra- for a leader or a founder to transition into that leadership role and and get out of what's comfortable? So I I guess I really think it's two things. I guess first off, most of us you know are at heart artisans and rebels. You know we don't feel like we're CEOs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I know I felt like I created a little utopia when we started the brewery. And uh, so there's just transitioning from that initial opening, you know, that kind of, hey, everybody's going to be fat and happy. Um, I think the other thing is, too, is, you know, we open these businesses because we love, you know, we love it. We love our beer. We, we love beer. We love our customers. We love our employees. And, um, you know, uh, there's just this vision in your mind, maybe like, Hey, if I'm going to become the CEO, you know, I have to be detached or I can't be involved in the stuff that I love doing, you know, brewing beer or meeting customers. Um, but I, I guess you, you know, you have to certain point just to realize you're making, you're creating more disciples that work for you basically that can help spread the word. Yeah. Yeah. Passing off those responsibilities. I know for me was very scary. But at some point, at a size, you have to. There, there's no, right. there's, there's really no, no, no doubt about it. Uh, tell us about your leadership roles outside of the brewery, because I know you're involved in in a number of them, primarily with the guild. So talk to us about that for a little bit. Yeah, that's the big one. I'm, uh, I'm the, the, really, it's the second term president, but it feels like the third because the last guy quit, <laughs> so I had to do his term plus two more. But uh, third term president of the Louisiana Craft Brewers Guild and and, you know, Louisiana is in the deep south, as you know. And uh, so our laws are really, really 
backwards compared to the rest of the nation when it comes to craft beer and distribution. And, and so we've been, you know, first off, it's hard when you're leading other leaders because everybody has a vision of where they want the guild to go, right? Every single member is also a leader in his own brewery. And so it's kind of like herding cats a lot of times. Um, but we've been planting a lot of seeds the last four or five years. We've been in Baton Rouge, putting in bills, watching them get defeated. Um, but we're hoping this is the year we get to harvest <laughs> some of those seeds. And and it's looking like it's a good chance um, because, uh, well, like last year, we had a bill that was really pretty easy. seemed like an easy pass. It just allowed a caterer to host an event at a brewery. So, like, if you wanted to get married, you can hire a caterer, which we can't do now in Louisiana. And so uh, it, it passed the House almost unanimously. But then when it got into the Senate, you know, it just uh, the distributor group made it seem like you know we were, had pitchforks that were burning down distribution and so it got a bunch of amendments put on there that pretty much killed it but uh i don't know this year we're working with a couple of representatives and senators for like a brewery recovery program because you know louisiana breweries are pretty much on average down 20 something percent this year uh, because of the pandemic so we're working like on a brewery recovery bill to help recover from that response and our members have really, for the most part, stepped up and been contacting uh, the legislators and talking to the press. So, fingers crossed. How many breweries are in the Louisiana Brewers Guild? So, uh, it started, I guess, about nine years ago with the five breweries that were open. And uh, it was basically a, a drinking club. <laughs> so, we, we would sit around, just drink and complain. And then we got serious, hired a, um, when we got to about 30 breweries, we got, uh, we hired a, a director and a lobbyist. And, uh, so now there's four, 40 breweries in the state. Um, I think there's 32 of them are members of the guild. Do you have, um, legislators who are friendly to your cause? We have a few. Uh, advocates? We, have a, we have a few, um, our, our main, I mean, there's a few. Uh, our main problem, like anywhere else, you know, uh, the distribution tier definitely has a lot more money and influence. So, you know, um, and that's like uh, that's like mother's milk, the money in politics. So uh, it's just hard for a, a, a legislator to vote against that because then, the, you know, that that source of funds may dry up. Yeah, I've I've noticed that the distributors union or representatives will usually allow some throwaway bill, whether it's a change in growler size or in what you were describing as this catering bill, that seemed like it was uh, an easy gimme to the craft brewers. So they would just be stay quiet for a couple of sessions. Right. It sounds to me like you're dealing with a super tough crowd. Yeah. And, you know, Louisiana is kind of, it's hard to describe, but we really have it so that there's really two beer distribution networks. There's a Budweiser network and then there's a Miller Coors. There's not much, the way the laws are in, it's not easy to open an independent distributor. We have one uh, and we have one that does uh, kind of like high-end spirits and wine and a little bit of craft beer. But for the most part, all of our breweries are either with the Budweiser, or the Miller Coors network. And those, and look, they're nice guys. They're protecting their business. I'm not, you know, uh, knocking them i'm just saying you know it'd be nice to <laughs> get a little help for us too you know yeah definitely um how, how far are you guys located from new orleans so i'm two hours west 
Um, and uh, I don't know if you know much about Louisiana. We're really in the cooler spot as far as the things to do. You know, it's not like our Mardi Gras is very different than New Orleans. It's all on horseback. And um, we're uh, definitely more traditional kind of Louisiana Cajun area. Um, the food's a lot better. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> so it's just different. We're more Cajun than Creole. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, two hours away. We get a lot of tourists that come here. Um, you know, they go to New Orleans for a few days and they'll come here and park their RV or whatever. And tons of just like little festivals and uh, things to see and do that are just just different, like swamp tours, Tabasco's nearby. Oh, nice. So are you would you be say would you say you're close to Texas? Uh, right in the middle of the state, pretty much. So I'm the same okay. distance to Texas as I am to New Orleans. OK. Very good. And uh, would you say that New Orleans has been affected beer wise by the pandemic? That's been the most affected in Louisiana because the uh, the mayor there has taken uh, restrictions above and beyond the the uh, the state. And so uh, pretty much most of our member breweries have been pretty much shut down. Like the, the tap rooms, except for beer to go, have been shut down almost this entire year. Um. And so the restaurants and the bars are all shut down or severely more so than rest state restricted. So uh, it, it has collapsed the craft beer market, the beer market probably in total uh, in that city, which is where everybody makes their money, right? The rest of the state, you sell some beer, but man, you really sell some in New Orleans <laughs> during Mardi Gras. You know? sure. that, this year, there was none of that. Uh, we went, I took my crew, we try to hit a, a brewery or, or uh, a producer of some type every month or so we went to new orleans hit a few last maybe last month and uh places where you couldn't get into before we were the only ones there so it was pretty depressing hopefully that all comes back real quick yeah i was listening to one of my favorite podcasts yesterday he's a uh economics professor marketing professor at nyu the prof g show and he was claiming that we're going to have a roaring 20s starting in September through the end of 2022. Uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of cash available right now, a lot of stimulus right. and people being, being pent up. Uh, right. So I'm hoping that happens and, and the craft beer industry gets a piece of that. We kind of see it in this state, you know, uh, tap rooms are open outside of New Orleans to a certain extent, um, a bit, a bit of a restriction. And uh, those guys, most of our members, their numbers are a bit up over last year, over the last couple of years. So people are starting to spend money uh, where they're allowed to, you know. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, something I'm curious about back to the, the leadership topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard an interesting conversation once about do entrepreneurs make good CEOs? Right. And I know, I know a lot of times I kind of feel like I'm an imposter or maybe, maybe my brewery would be way farther ahead than it is now if, if right. a true business person was in charge. So can you talk about that a little bit? You know, I, I feel the same way. And I often think, man, if I could just hire somebody. But yeah, um, I read a book years ago when I was first starting the brewery and I can't remember the name of it, but one of the chapters was this guy who was in uh, World War II and was shot down over Germany, right? And was made a POW and he escaped. He went to Switzerland and finally made it back. And he said, you know, that's almost as scary as owning a business. 
And I think there's a lot to that. You know, it's, uh, you know, you can hire somebody as a CEO, but they they may not be as passionate and, and make some of the great decisions that you're going to make anyway. You know, uh, you might take longer to get to it or might not do it as well, but you're going to make some great decisions as an entrepreneur uh, because it's your baby, right? It's your, it's part of your family. Yeah, that's true. I should have more confidence, maybe. <laughs> well, I think a lot of times, and I, I've seen that at our brewery, you know, uh, you get focused, and Chris helped me with this a few years back. You get focused on what you think you're supposed to be, right? So for the first seven years we're in business, I'm like, we're a production brewery. I don't care about the tap room. We're just selling beer to distributors. That's that's who we are, and that's how we make our money. And Chris told me something basically like, you're spending 80% of your time on a place where you get a margin of maybe 10 or 15%. You're yeah. ignoring your tap room where you're making 70% margin, spending no time. So I flipped that number of, of my effort from 80% market to 20% market and 80% tap room. And you know, we've just about doubled that tap room every year since I've talked to Chris. Chris is so smart. <laughs> we, should, we should hire him to run our businesses. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the uh, accolades from both of you, but um, yeah, it just comes, I mean, it, it, if we look at the dollars and cents and I think taking it back to the, the, the leadership topic that Brandon mentioned this a lot during season one, that it truly is a passion project and we get in the weeds and we gravitate toward what we're comfortable with all the stuff we've said before. And we lose sight of the fact that we've got to make, we've got to, uh, make enough profit to pay the bills and keep some. Right. Well, when, we've all taken was, massive risks by opening right. these businesses. Well, when I was a home brewer, I tell you that the thing I enjoyed most uh, was handing someone a beer and they just taste and say, this is delicious. And then yep. you open a brewery and you focus more on selling stuff that a distributor will hand to a retailer and hope someone says it's delicious. Whereas if you have a tap room, you can hand that beer to that person like you used to be able to as a home brewer. So it's almost more joy to me. And, and, and for years I fought it because I didn't think it made sense. But, you know, you opened my eyes. I, I think that experience at your brewery, a customer experiencing your beer, and then just the greater margin is just, you know, where we need to focus, especially after this past year. Many of us need to focus our attention. Right. Yeah. It, it's almost going to be like a rebirth with getting people back out spending money in tap rooms and recapture that experience that happened in 2009 to 2011 or whenever you opened your spot and it was it was so exciting so i think everyone's going to have a, a second chance to exhibit that to the customers and for us the other thing we pivoted and uh, you helped us on this as well was we added a food component we added pizza yeah uh, and look that's a Amen. lot of work it's a lot of work, you know, it's more work almost in the tap room because you got to, you know, uh, you got to train people to cook and serve and you got to make sure you have all the food in and the margins aren't as good. But, man, it brings a lot more people out. Those have helped our tap room numbers and people stay longer, you know, uh, or some people just come for the food. You know, they'll come for the food and drink a soda. It's just it's just kind of like, as far as the bottom line, icing on the cake. Did that help you during COVID in terms of your how you were categorized and your ability to open versus breweries that didn't have the food component? Sort of. So Louisiana has so few breweries that we were always kind of an afterthought. Um, they would come out with a 
proclamation about what we're supposed to do. And then sometimes the, our regulatory agency would say, Hey, you're, you're more like a bar. Sometimes you're more like a restaurant. So it's, it's kind of ping pong back, back and forth, but overall it helped us a lot. We were allowed to have more people for the most part at our brewery mm-hmm. than other ones. A lot of breweries who didn't have food at all could not sell anything, but to go. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. And so, and, and I think also just, you know, it just, it brought out people who normally wouldn't go to a brewery during a pandemic, you know, they can come out, they'll get some food, enjoy the atmosphere. And we have a big outdoor area, kind of like a big giant beer garden. So they felt safe. And, uh, you know, now we have some new regular customers out of it. That's great. I, I do have the saying that everyone has to eat. Everyone must eat. Nobody has to drink. And that's contrary to the <laughs> industry that I serve, but it's, it's right. true. Right. I so, think the trick, though, is it's, you know, because I talk to brewers, oh, we're just going to add, you know, hot dogs and chili. I'm like, no, you, you've got to have, that's got to be as much of a draw as, as the as the beer. Right? You've yeah, got to have really good food. I agree with that 100%. I, I feel personally that everything we do, we have to be striving for the pinnacle right. of, of whatever that is. So, yeah, there can't be any mediocrity anywhere. I agree. And we're in a we're in a small town. Our town, and we're about 30, 40 minutes from any sizable city. Um, so I've got to attract people out here. We're our town's about a thousand people. And my joke is, you know, it never changes because every time a girl gets pregnant, a boy leaves town. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, we got to attract people. I always tell my guys, hey, someone's driven forty minutes to eat this pizza or drink this beer. It it needs to be the best that it can be. And uh, I think that's true whether you're in a in Los Angeles, you know, or anywhere. Mm-hmm. You have, have to make an effort to come see you. You've got to provide a great atmosphere and great product uh, for them to spend your money with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here in L.A., I mean, there's people have choices. It's not necessarily that, you know, they're seeking us out because they drove a long distance. But, I mean, they have a lot of breweries to choose from and a lot of restaurants, too. So, you, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got to stand out. Yeah. Especially like the pizza, you know, it, it would be easy to do just, the, and I fought it for a long time, just the pepperoni and the cheese, but people are going to drive, you know, 40 minutes to get another pepperoni pizza. So you got to add, you know, unique toppings and unique sides that they just can't get anywhere else. Definitely. What's your yeah. favorite pizza? That we do? Yeah. So uh, I have, um, I have two employees in my kitchen. They're both young folks who are from Paris, France. Um, and uh, th- their father's from our hometown in Arneville here. And uh, so they're living with them. And, and uh, they just moved to America. And what they missed was something called a raclette cheese. It's a real nice, stinky French melty cheese. Mm-hmm. And it's a pizza they do in France. It's just uh, it's just uh, roasted potato, that cheese, no sauce or anything else, a little olive oil and salt. And it is oh, phenomenal. Man, it's so so good. The cheese and everything. It's just, so I'm getting that, and I'll put different. Now that the French people get upset because to them traditionally it's just potatoes and cheese on that pizza, but we'll put you know we make our own ham, so I'll either put ham or tasso or bacon or something on there and some green onions. Yeah, and it's just so like earthy and easy, and it's I, I just love that pizza. Yeah, that's crazy because we just put a potato leek pizza on our menu. And nice. I can't get enough. I can't get enough. It's so there's something about potato on pizza that's yeah, it's, really it's amazing. 
it's refreshing almost. You eat it, you feel, you know, I don't know. It's just like, like uh, humble and uh, and it's earthy. I just really love that combination of the bread and the potatoes. Yep. We're going to try the leeks. I like that idea. Oh, yeah. We sprinkle some fresh rosemary on the top. And we don't use raclette. We're, we're using Gruyere, but, you know, same thing, right? So Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> raclette melts. It's a melty cheese. It melts almost like, it's hard to describe. It's almost like nacho cheese sauce. It just turns into the sauce on top of pizza. Uh, so it's not like a stringy mozzarella. It's just like just this oozy, cheesy um, kind of sauce on top of the pizza. And it's maybe traditional we, in France. Maybe we need to do a pizza collab. We'll do we'll buck tradition and not do a beer collaboration, but we'll do a pizza collaboration. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. You know, here in Louisiana, it's hard. We're, we're talking earlier about vegetarians, uh, but there, there's not many in Louisiana. We put meat in our vegetables, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so definitely going to have to have some meat on it if I'm involved. Although we do a few vegetarian pizzas, but we don't sell a lot of them. I think it's great how intentional you both are with the food component of it. And I know you're intentional about your your beer, but as right. you mentioned, Carlos, you've got to be intentional about the delivery if people are going to drive 40 minutes right. and stay and patronize your place over and over. Because I, th- I really think with all the food options today and beer options, you got one shot. Right. So that's, that's incredible. And I, and I think you have to pay attention to everything, you know, what the menu feels like or how mm-hmm. clean the tables are, or, you know, all that stuff is important. People notice that you might not, your employees aren't going to notice that the bathrooms need cleaning, but your customers will. Yeah. Yep. So you got to handle all, and it's a lot of work. Um, it's a lot of work to focus on everything, um, but you have to. Right. Awesome. All right. To close us out, Carlos, let's talk about the challenges and the joys of beating, uh, of leadership. Let's start with the challenges. Well, you know, who was it? President Truman said the buck stops here. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the number one challenge. You know, um, you can make a hundred decisions, uh, 51 of them better be good. <laughs> 49 can hurt you, but 51 better make you some money. Sure. And so that's, the, that's the hardest thing, you know, it's, uh, you can do a lot of research and you can, whatever, you know, if, if it's a new style, taste a lot of beers and do a lot of things, but until it hits the market, you know, you don't, don't, don't know if you made the right call. So that's, that's to me, the main thing. It's like every day you're, you're tested and you have to perform better than the day before to keep going. Mm -hmm. And then what about the joys of being a leader? You know, uh, I have a, it took a while, but I have a great team. Uh, they're enthusiastic. Um, I have some, some of my, uh, my weight staff and kitchen staff will actually run to to help a customer, you know, physically, physically run. And so that's great, you know, and just seeing a, a, a team really come together and, a brew team really come together and do beautiful things, a kitchen staff and, you know, uh, doing it without you having to have your thumb on them. You know, you've just inspired them and you've uh, coached them. Uh, that's, that's, that makes my day, you know, at the end of yeah. the day. And, and, you know, I'm sure, sure you guys know the same, you know, you, you end up working, you know, 12, 15 hours a day at something you love. You like to see that kind of reward of people smiling when they, they come visit you and your, your, your employees smiling. So it's, uh, you know, just that joy and that love that people feel for you, both customers and employees. It's really makes your day. Yeah. 
That's great. That's very well said regarding the challenges and the, the joys. Cause I, I, I do agree that I say it in a, a bit of a different terms that the eater leaders eat last. Right. right. So that's, that's a, a book that I read and it is very true regarding the business, the staff, everything has to come first, right? right? The experience has got right. to come first and then the, the, the leaders can, can slot themselves in. But the reward of that is if everything goes well and there's procedures in place and there's great reviews and great, great product, then it's just, it's awesome to, to grow a, a small business into something larger and larger and larger. Yeah. And I like that quote because that's from the army. I was in the army for about eight years where I learned a little bit about leadership and, uh, I was a cavalry scout. So it was a combat arms and, uh, that was drilled into you, you know, the last person to eat or last person to go to sleep. I had a, 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 a NCO tell me when I was just learning, I was a little corporal, just learning how to lead people. He's like, uh, you know, uh, no one works harder than the boss. <laughs> so right. if you're not working hard and doing stuff, no one else will. Right. Awesome, Carlos. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a killer interview, man. I've really enjoyed catching back up with you and, and hearing how things are going and how you're making it through this atypical pandemic time. So uh, best of luck to you guys out in, in Louisiana and hope to talk to you soon. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing you soon. I appreciate all the help. You're welcome. Yep. Great chat. Great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Looking forward to try that pizza. We'll get together soon. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right. See you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Craft Podcast. Links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Small Batch Standard. Small Batch Standard is the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax planning and filing, and growth consulting. Visit sbstandard.com today to learn more and request a discovery call. See ya.